I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Hey, this is Whitney, just stepping in to let you know that we recorded a little long in this episode because we thought the conversations were really good. So we're going to break it into two parts. Today you'll hear Sugi and I talk a little bit amongst ourselves and then we'll bring in Jess Rao and Timothy Yu. And then we'll broadcast the second half of this interview on August 29th, also a Thursday, um, with Jess Rao and Timothy Yu. Uh, so the best way to hear both parts of this conversation is to subscribe to our podcast by typing fiction slash non slash fiction podcast into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. But we'll also have story pages up on LitHub on the front page, um, both the 22nd of August and the 29th. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. In the wake of the events in El Paso, in the past three years of Trumpian dog whistles, and the anniversary of Heather Heyer's death in Charlottesville, and, 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 this week's episode is about whiteness. <laughs> it just goes on, the whiteness. It really does. Uh, Sugi and I talk about race a lot in our episode planning conversations. And also because we both write about it. Um, and I, in particular, wrote about the complicated history of race in my hometown of Kansas City. And my second novel, The King of Kings County, um, which I think we're going to end up talking about some in this discussion, is about racial covenants. Wit, what on earth is a racial covenant? Well, <laughs> did you, I mean, I, I do, I'm kind of curious, like, wh- at what point did you become aware of racial covenants and like what they were? I think I became aware of that specific term and its importance really when I read your book. Um, oh, really? Yeah, because I'm not sure a lot of people actually know about them. I mean, I think that term, right, like we talk about, like, the, like I, I knew what redlining was. Um, right. 
But I hadn't, I mean, the particular term that you use um, was a term that you introduced to me. Yeah, so. it's, it's way more insidious. It's, it's a, it is a, it's something that was used in a, by a lot of real estate companies in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, but in, it was sort of perfected by a company here in Kansas City called the Nichols Company, run by this guy named J.C. Nichols. Um, and what are, what are, are, it's really a restrictive covenant, but that has racial terminology, um, and so uh, you put a restrictive covenant on a house like it can't be four stories tall or it can't have a shake shingle roof or, you know, you can't put a gas pump in the front yard. You know, there are all kinds of covenants like that. But then he would put in uh, covenants that were specifically related to race. So these covenants, uh, I mean, would read ownership by Negroes prohibited. None of the lots hereby restricted may be conveyed to, used, owned, or occupied by Negroes as owners or tenants. Um, I mean, fairly stark language. Uh, I all, all of all of that company's buildings and houses were so covenanted, uh, beginning in like 1910, and they built a shitload of houses. You know, like a, the sole center part of the city. Um, and then also the western suburbs in Johnson County across the state line in Kansas. And those covenants were also, they had a man- mandatory neighborhood associations whose job it was to enforce the covenants. Um, and also the covenants that the, that the Nichols Company used um, were more complicated than covenants that people had used previous to that. I mean, they, were, they didn't invent these covenants, but they did figure out ways to like make it so that the covenants would continue on no matter who bought the house. There were a lot of co- the older covenants would sort of end with a sale, right? So these neighborhoods were sort of locked into like a homogeneous white idea of a neighborhood and a legal thing up, up through 1945 when those covenants were declared unenforceable. But it didn't really matter that, that the Supreme Court said that they were unenforceable because they, their, 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 their effect on the city still existed. And like basically neighborhoods were still, the covenants didn't come off the deeds. The city behaved as if those were legally still powerful up through the 80s, I would say, and 90s. Wow. Well, so... Um one of the things that was interesting after I became aware of this particular term by talking to you, um, this came up in the news in Minnesota. Um, there were some articles about it. There's an article in February of this year on MinPost. Um, and there's the, I became aware of the Mapping Prejudice website, which is mappingprejudice.org, which is about um, hidden histories of race and privilege in Minneapolis. Their tagline visualizing that, and they have information about racial covenants in Minnesota. Um, I'm sure they were used there. He yeah, was, they were. They were used here. J.C. Nichols was heavily involved in politics, and he was head of the National Association of Real Estate Brokers. You know, he would sort of export <laughs> this idea. You know, um, yeah, it's, it, it was for me. It's just such a shocking. I mean, I remember when I figured this out. I had spent most of my life, you know, wondering why downtown was empty and why all everyone I knew was moving out into the suburbs. You know, and nobody had any just That's kind of the way it is. You know, I don't know. You know, because my grandparents remembered when downtown was vibrant and there were streetcars and, you know, um, 
Union Station was there and vibrant and it was closed for most of my life, although it's reopened now. And I was talking to an aunt, uh, Libby Snyder, a great aunt of mine who is uh, sort of like an H.L. Mencken fan. <laughs> she had a huge H.L. Mencken collection. She was a reader and talking to her about this. And she went back into the back room of her house and came out with the abstract to her house, which shows all the deeds of the house over time. And she showed me that language. I was in the middle of writing what would be the King of Kings County. I thought it was going to be like a mob novel. And I saw that and I realized like, oh, these guys were the mob. And so, but nobody had ever said a word about that to me in my entire life. And it's important to note that like, I knew the Nichols family, you know, my aunt was married to Miller Nichols, who's the son of J.C. Nichols. So I knew them. I knew their kids. Uh, some of the kids of other branches of the family were in high school with me. Nobody ever said a word about this. And yet it was obviously an incredibly important thing. It was so, in, so crazy the amount of silence and erasure that was around that. I wonder how many novels begin because the writers feel like they were lied to in some way. Um, <laughs> no. So was that true for you? Um, yeah. Yes. I think that's a different episode. But okay. um, <laughs> but I think you know one of the things I really appreciated about your novel is, you know, like essentially what we're talking about here is like we're talking about policy, right? Like we're talking about um, the law and policy and systems. And it's so, right, like we're told sort of um, – or at least I was told, you know, like your novels or your fiction, fiction isn't meant to be didactic. And, and certainly that's true. But like, you know, this isn't exactly like morally ambiguous. It's, it's actually pretty plainly, pretty plainly terrible. And of course, it has um, a range of effects on a range of people over time. I think like your novel is such an interesting and unusual dramatization of the consequences of systemic racism. And think, you know, like one of the responses that you often get if you're talking about racism is a, a response of, you know, oh, I'm not racist or to whoever you're talking to or, or but that person's not racist. That's sort of an individual response. And then to explain that prejudice might be individual, but racism is systemic, right? Like, and that's also actually a problem of art. Like, how would you, how do you dramatize the collective? You know, how you're, how are you affecting, how has this affected the communities facing discrimination and also the people perpetrating it? And so this, your book seems to me really unusual as an attempt in a novel to reckon with collective white responsibility in the history of white crimes against communities of color in America. And I think like for me, the heart of this episode and, and part of why it was so interesting to read your book is, you know, like, I wonder why that is unusual and what kind of audience that self-critique has among white readers, because that's something I'm becoming interest, intensely interested in in today's America, because if there's there's sort of no disincentive for bullying of, of all kinds, except for its corrosive effects on like, well, you're, you're, you're like freaking soul, you know, how does one talk to, I don't know, bullies and dictators and supremacists? And I don't know, I mean, I don't know them, the Nichols family. And what, what tradition of self-critique, you know, you're talking about hearing this information for the first time, what tradition of self-critique does the white American community have? And in that vein, I thought you might start um, by reading for us from the King of Kings County and maybe telling us a little bit, it's fascinating to know that it began as a mob novel, um, because it does strike me as a book that's very interested in self-critique. Uh, yeah, I'd be happy to. I'd be happy to do that. This is a passage from the end of the book, really, like way late, and it is. It is 
it is told from all the book is told from the point of view of Jack Atchison, who is, begins the book when he's very young as a child, watching his father Alton Atchison, who is sort of a up and comer in the real estate business, and ends up getting into business with a company called the Bowen Company, which is sort of my fictionalized version Nichols. of the Nichols Company. Um, right. And uh, so there's some other names that are mentioned in here. Um, uh, Bobby Ann C is a mobster. Uh, there were you know really powerful mobsters in the 60s and 70s who were Italian in Kansas City. Uh, their kids were classmates of mine in, 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 uh, in high school. And, and so I assumed that this would have also been the case for Jack, who's much older than I am. Um, and, uh, he mentions, uh, Elmore Haywood, who is a black real estate, uh, guy who was also involved in the racial covenants and blockbusting because in fact, historically there were black real estate agents who profited off of this as unfortunate as that may be. One other thing. I, Kings County is essentially Johnson County, Kansas, and Kansas City is a weird state in the sense that there's a state line road that divides Missouri and Kansas. The downtown of Kansas City is in Missouri, and most of the old city is in Missouri, but the new city is in Kansas in part because it was built after Brown versus Board of Education passed, and people realized that they'd been teaching everyone that it's impossible to live in mixed-race neighborhoods. That was something, the project of the Nichols Company. Uh, and so once schools were going to be desegregated, there was suddenly a market for to build in Kansas where there were no black residents, and you would have resegregate the schools, in essence, by doing that. And that's what happened. So my Kings County is in Kansas. As for me, I had my own theories about the development of Kings County. Indeed, if you were a defense lawyer working in the Jackson County Courthouse in downtown Kansas City, which is in Missouri, it was impossible not to notice the implications of my father's story. They were my clients. From 1950 to 1980, the population of Kings County had ballooned from 60,000 to 270,000, the vast majority of these new arrivals being upper-middle-class white refugees from the city. The tax base of the two rival areas rose and fell respectively. Kings County constructed four new high schools during the decade, while Kansas City closed two. By 1985, the few white students who'd remained in the Kansas City-Missouri School District after busing began belatedly, as Elmore had pointed out in 1977, had fled, leaving our classrooms 90% black, while those in, Kings, in the Kings County School District were correspondingly 90% white. Everybody knew this story. Everybody knew that something epical, bizarre, and fantastic had happened to the city, particularly those who were my age or older and could remember how it used to be. They knew what had happened, but not why, and this story became something of an obsession for me, as if I was carrying on with these strangers the final argument that I'd botched with Jeannie. I honed and rehearsed it at innumerable bars and dinner parties. I told it to my clients, many of whom, given the crime wave that hit the east side in those years, were young black residents of neighborhoods where my father and Elmore Haywood had started selling houses back in the late 50s. I explained, as Bobby N.C. had done in our dining room, the Bowen's historical use of racial covenants. I went on, I went on to how they had deliber deliberately moved black families into the east side in an effort to scare whites into Kings County. I explained that the mortgages they offered to those families had been arranged and approved by the Bowen Company, who had an interest in getting whites to leave the city. I gave glorious denunciations of the effects of this process, and if I met any opposition, Work, working myself into a towering rage, 
how the segregation of the city and the destruction of its tax base, its rotten schools, its newly armed black youth, had not happened merely by accident. These explanations changed nothing at all, but what mattered to me was getting the story out, making the pieces fit. I felt this way even though people like my father and Elmore Haywood, both of whom I otherwise cared about deeply, and the Bowens came off as villains. They'd attempted in the Bowens case, and in the Bowens case succeeded, to get rich by ruining the city, and anybody who refused to recognize these facts was living in a dream. For years, in the interest of keeping the peace, my father and I had engaged in an unspoken detente on the subject, my father holding forth on his version of reality at Little Joey's bar in the grotto, while I made my arguments in the lawyer's bar on 13th Street. One night in the early 90s, however, I started talking real estate with an attorney named Mallory O'Neill, who handled land acquisition for the city. We'd been on a few dates. She was an Irish brunette, sharp-chinned, pale, with a beautiful expanse of collarbone, and she'd heard enough of my story to challenge me. What I don't get is, if your dad's so smart, she said, then where's all your money? I lifted both hands in the air. When you accept investment capital from a guy like Bobby Ansee, what do you expect? I still think you would have taken it, Mallory said. Being from Arizona, she had significantly less aversion to profiting from the suburbs than I did. Taken what, I said. The land, Mallory said. Come on, if your father had held on to that property, you'd be sitting on a yacht in Greece right now instead of talking about it with me. You think that's what I should have done? I don't know about should have. Let's say would have. Well, do you know what I think you should have done or should do, I said? What somebody should do? Prosecute the Bowen Company. Mallory laughed at this. Yeah, there's always a good move for a prosecutor. File charges against the biggest taxpayer in the taxpayer in the county. How do you think he became the biggest taxpayer, I said. He did it by sucking all the other businesses out of the city, out of downtown, out of the east side. And I was off again on my standard denunciations. Mallory was usually a good audience for these, listening with a skeptical cock of her chin, throwing out challenges to my self-contained story. Arguments were what I liked. But this time, before I'd gotten up, gotten completely revved up, she plucked my sleeve. Your dad, she said, is he a big guy? Likes to wear old-fashioned hats? I nodded. That's him. Why? But Mallory had already gestured over my shoulder, and when I turned, I saw my father sitting on a bar stool, spun around to face our booth, a yellow motoring cap tipped back on his forehead. Came by to see if you wanted to get dinner with Elmore and me, he said, but it's against my principles to interrupt a good story. Thank you. I mean, I think that's sort of not just such a good dramatization in of the way that people talk politics in their towns and homes and argue over them, but also in a funny way, like the way that, you know, for someone who is writing for their community with which they maybe don't agree, the way that that person might just actually just be sitting a bar stool over, um, in, in what ways that reader is just waiting over there to kind of call you on your <laughs> complicity also. Right. You know, because the scene gets it so much like Jack is, is virtue signaling at Mallory, like, um, like the biggest lighthouse on the shore. And that's very familiar too. Um, even as I sympathize with him so deeply and, you know, find him a very compelling character. And the book was published in 2005. What is it like for you to reread and think about that passage as the Trump administration is leveraging both white liberal guilt and white working class anxiety to gain more and more power? Yeah. I mean, it's so Jess Rao, who we're going to talk to later, um, talk some about the way the, the conservative form of the novel makes it difficult to write about race and racism. Um, Jack 
is a good guy. He's what he's saying there is right. But the fact that he's right and as you say virtue signaling and angry about it makes him a terrible character. <laughs> it's really hard, right? To write a novel in which you're pissed off all the time. You know, you have to find some way to loosen and find space in the narrative. Um, and so for me, uh, you know, the first draft of this book was like 500 pages of Jack looking up all this crap and it was totally boring. But I had assumed that his father would not tell him what he had done like all other wasps I knew, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't until I invented this character of Alton Atchison, whose one redeeming feature is that in his commentary on capitalism, which he feels is just basically a system by which you try to cheat other people, he's totally honest about it. And that made him compelling, despite the horrible things that he does in the book, in a way that Jack oddly isn't. And that was just a device that I was lucky to happen upon. That's um, the notion that it's hard to write a whole novel while being pissed off is certainly very, very, it's helpful, I'm sure, to some of our listeners. It's certainly helpful to me. Um, and yeah, he is, right, like, you know, the the criminal who owns and announces his crime um, in some ways is more interesting than the well, character who conceals it. I mean, this is what Trump is, so this is why people are compelled by Trump, and it's hard for me not to see parallels between Alton Atchison and Trump. I mean, Alton's, he, first of all, he's a blonde, big guy who dresses fancy. You know, he dresses kind of more fancy than Trump ever would. But, um, you know, he does know that this is all a confidence game. And, you know, race is ineluctably connected to capitalism, in my view, right? That, that like, so much of what has worked in capitalism has been exploitation by race. So many fortunes have been built that way. You know, and we're just beginning to sort of grapple with how pervasive that was, you know. Um, and is. Yeah. And so Trump's the same way. Anybody who worked in real estate. Anybody. Yeah. I mean, I think the older I get, the more I'm sort of like the two finite resources are like the earth and time. Um Right. Like if someone takes your time, they take your labor, you can't get it back. Um, that's stealing on an epic level. And, you know, I'm Thummel and like in Thummel, we have there there are like words for people's connections to their ancestral places that are like nearly untranslatable. And like that kind of like your your point about land, your description, I mean, Alton's description via you of, of um, or I guess the other way around, um, your description of capitalism via Alton. I mean, that seems isn't that what capitalism is like a like a terrible way of of cheating people as much as possible? It seems like it's so much of the time. Yeah, and so um, I mean, there's an early of, there's an early scene in yeah. the book where Alton goes through like, well, look, Tom Durant built the rail the United Pacific Union Pacific Railroad across Iowa in a curve so that it would go by the land that he bought up ahead of time. He goes through all the capitalists. If you go back and look at all the heroic capitalists of the past, were all basically liars and cheats. Uh, I wonder, like, what models you had as you were writing this, or how you how you moved from making it a mob novel to to um, thinking about how to make it a novel about this kind of theft. I mean, I had that moment of realization. I had a moment when I was at a, I wandered into a party that was happening on a big fancy street in Kansas City, where there were like some zoo animals outside, 
And uh, I, I was with a friend what? of my sister's. There was Wait, like a, sorry, there was like a, I was a big party going on. There was like a giraffe and a zebra outside this fa- fancy house. And um, we went in, we crashed this party, this friend of mine and I, just wandering around. I was like, I was young, like 22. And um, it was clearly a mobbed up party. And I'm not going to go into long. I have actually, the new book I have has a description of this party. But um, I walked in the front room and there was Miller Nichols. I was like, okay. You know, and I've been wondering what the fuck that meant all these years. And so anyway, there was a way of like thinking about the mob stories of Kansas City, but, but connecting them to the white shoe sort of business mob, which is the real mob. You know, I feel like I feel like everything and all the Godfather stuff and all that stuff, like those guys were small potatoes, you know, compared to to what uh, white collar criminals are doing. And in some ways, the fascination, American fascination with the mob is a is a deflection and way of avoiding what white collar criminals are doing most of the time. So it's quote unquote white collar criminals. Um, I mean, it's some white collar criminals, I guess, are certainly in bed with the mob. Um I can't believe that. Wait, so I really want to put in the episode description for this, like uh, the episode in which Whitney discusses how he ended up at a party with he crashed a party with zoo animals. That's true. Um, I was really not expecting you to say that. Um, (laughs) I'm sure that won't be the last time in this episode that I'm surprised. Um, Good God. Um, I, for the record, am am the podcast co-host who has never crashed a a party with zoo animals at it. Um, That was more common in my 20s. Um, So... (laughs) I mean, the only other thing about writing this book and you asked me what it was like is that it was terrifying and I had no idea. Uh, and I would ask people about this and they would just shut down and they wouldn't say stuff to me. And I knew my family was going to be pissed and people were pissed. And I, yeah, I was so afraid that I was going to get sued. I was terrifying. And there wasn't a structure. Like I really had not heard the term and maybe this is my fault or maybe it's the fault of the culture that I had not heard the term structural racism when I wrote this book. I didn't know what it was. I just was writing a story that ha- that I was like, holy fucking shit, the implications of this are gigantic. And in a way, I've never gotten over that story. So you, of course, you mentioned you, that you knew the Nichols family. Like, what was the reaction in Kansas City to this book? Um, I mean, I think it helped that I had published a reasonably well-received novel like four years before. Um, uh, and so people wanted to read it. You know, they want, I mean, it's still taught uh, around here. And it is very often the first time that people learn about the, the covenant system uh, through that book. There are other good books. Uh, Kevin Fox Gotham uh, wrote a book called Race, Real Estate and Uneven Development. It came out about a, a little bit before mine and is a sort of scholarly treatise on this, basically. If you want the facts, you would go to him. If you want an interesting story, you would come to me. Um but uh, yeah, you know, I, I, there were some interesting like comments on Amazon where I was called like a lick spittle footman and kind of things like that. You know, I mean, there was a lick spittle footman. I think I'm, oh I, mean, I have that quote right. I have to look it up. Like, <laughs> I copied that down, but it was something along like the footman is, you know, it, it has has attacked his master. That kind of weird language like that. You know, uh, it was it was bizarre, but it was also I felt like. Uh, we did a lot of public events, and I and I did one ten years later at the Kansas City Public Library with like uh, the head of the Urban League, um, Gwen Grant, and 
Emil Cleaver, who's the son of our uh, representative Emmanuel Cleaver and the library's director, Crosby Kemper, uh, talking about the legacy of the book. And, you know, 500 people came to that thing. I mean, it's a thing that it, it was a thing that helped. It, it, it was. I thought that Kansas City's talking about race is is helpful and powerful I don't think I'm not saying I'm not the only person who writes about this stuff, but I think talking about that story is helpful and powerful in contrast to the way that people in Ferguson discovered the way that the the police department was making money off people in that in a systematic way in that neighborhood. And that had never been spoken about. Right. And it didn't come out until there were riots. Um, So I think the airing of truth is really helpful. We've had an extended interview because we wanted to, Sugi very kindly wanted to talk about this book in relationship to the topic today. So Sugi, thanks for proposing that. I really appreciated your interest in doing it. Yeah, I was, I I love the book and was, um, would encourage our listeners to pick it up. And I think that, yeah, just again, to emphasize it, like I think writing about structural or systemic racism, writing about collective responsibility is something that like I'm interested in seeing white writers do. Um, and I thought this was a cool example of that. Thank you. Um, that means a lot to me. We're going to begin our discussion now with our two special guests who are going to help us talk about this subject and who have written excellent stuff on this subject. First, we're thrilled to have Jess Rao with us once more. His new book, The Essay Collection White Flights, is just out from Grey Wolf. He's the author of two collections of short stories, The Train to Lo Wu and Nobody Ever Gets Lost, a novel, Your Face and Mine. His fiction has appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Tin House, Conjunctions, Plowshares, Grana, N Plus One, and elsewhere. He's been anthologized three times in Best American Short Stories and has won the Guggenheim Fellowship and the NEA Fellowship in Fiction, a Whiting Writer's Award, and a Whiting Creative Nonfiction Grant. His nonfiction and criticism appear in The New Yorker, The New Republic, New York Times Book Review, Book Forum, and other venues. He teaches at the College of New Jersey and occasionally at NYU. Welcome, Jess. Well, thank you for having me again for my, uh, my double dip in That's right. nonfiction. You're in a select company there. And we're also excited to have with us the poet and professor Timothy Yu. Timothy Yu is associate professor of English and Asian American Studies and director of the Asian American Studies program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's the author of the poetry collection 100 Chinese Silences, the editor's selection in the 2014 NOS Book Contest. He is also the author of Race and the Avant-Garde, Experimental in Asian American Poetry Since 1965, which won the Book Award in Literary Studies from the Association for Asian American Studies. His poems have appeared in Poetry and the Kartika Review, among others, and his essays and reviews have appeared in The New Republic and on CNN, also among others. Most recently, Tim wrote a much-circulated New Republic piece, a response to an essay by the poet Bob Hickok, in which Hickok reflected on his whiteness, his maleness, and what he perceives as his dwindling audience. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Happy to be here. All right, so Jess has just written a book that in part, well, not just written since you've been working on it for a long time, but it's just out, uh, that in part theorizes about the effective strategies that white writers can and have employed to write about whiteness. While Tim wrote an essay critiquing the, in my view, embarrassing way that a white writer attempted to write about whiteness, maybe we could talk about outlining, maybe we should start by outlining why whiteness is an important thing to write about at all. This is Tim, and I think that... The question of writing about whiteness is such an interesting one because I think for so long the burden or expectation of writing about race in general has fallen on writers of color. So it's been expected that writers of color will be the ones who will 
talk about racism, talk about it from the perspective of their own experiences, talk about what it's like to be a person of color in America and so on. But I think that increasingly it's been more and more important for white writers to interrogate their own positions. And I think that's something that we're seeing happening increasingly. Um, and I think the reason, there are many reasons why that's important. And, you know, Jess can speak more about that as well. But I think one of the biggest reasons is that certainly for white writers who do want to critique racism, they do want to think about what their own position is. Uh, but I think in a lot of cases, they don't know where to begin. They don't know where to start with that process. And so interrogating their own racial position is something that I think is is an area that white writers have been exploring very recently and need to keep exploring if they want to think about, well, what's their position vis-a-vis -vis racism? It's, so, it's sort of like the proverb about the tree, like, the best time would have been 20 years ago, but the second best time is now to start right. thinking about that. Yeah, that's right. Uh, this is Jess. Um, and I, I think Tim has uh, outlined the basic uh, the basic need, the requirement really uh, very well. I would say that um, a lot of this goes back to the response that you often hear from white writers and white people in general. Um, when the question of race comes up, one of the first things that one often hears is, I'm not a racist. And I think that that speaks to a level of um, obliviousness and wishful thinking um, that really, that indica often indicates to me that that person has really not done a lot of deep thinking about race at all. <laughs> um, and, you know, so... One of the reasons why I started the project of writing White Flights, which I, I really started a long, a long time ago, um, was the need, was because I felt this this really pressing need. Um, I knew from my own uh, training, my background, my education as a writer, how uh, thoroughly I had been taught to um, ignore and dispossess questions of race. In my in my fiction, and um, and I I knew as as soon as I started thinking about it, I knew that there was a there was a very close link between that um, that effort to avoid race as a subject in writing, which I was which I was taught was really a requirement for white writers. Um, there was a, a deep link between that level of avoidance and the general obliviousness about race and racism among white people in general. I mean, I didn't, I don't know what the case was for you, Jess, but I did not have a black teacher until I had James McPherson in graduate school. And, mm. and he immediately started talking about this. And I was like, oh, yes, you're right. You know, but, but in high school, like, my teachers were all white. Um, and I did have the chance to take uh, some teachers who were, who were, who were not white in, in college, but not specifically for workshops, you know? Mm -hmm. And so there mm -hmm. just wasn't any discussion of this issue as it pertained to writing. It just didn't happen. Yeah, I, I mean, I had black teacher. I had my kindergarten teacher was a, a black woman. Uh, one of my uh, literature teachers in high school was a black woman. But um, those were still very white spaces. Those were uh, private schools that were um, overwhelmingly white. And... Um, the issue of race only um, only tangentially came up um, 
And so, and it, it was, and you know, I, I like, I never had a, a black creative writing uh, instructor. And in my very first uh, creative writing workshop that I took when I was 17 years old, uh, the teacher told us it was an all white workshop, an all white group of students. And the teacher said to us, this is in 1992, he said, um, because of William Styron's book, The Confessions of Nat Turner. Oh, yeah. You mentioned that in the book. Yeah. White writers, white writers should never write about race. He said, it's the third rail. Don't do it. You know, you'll get punished. So that's a book that was published in 1969. And it was still being held up in 1992. And in some quarters, it's still held up today as a a sort of, um, you know, the, as, as sort of a, a generic principle of why white writers can't, why white writers can't write about race. It's so interesting to listen to, right, the, you, you mentioned the reflexive response, you know, I am not a racist, and this notion of punishment, right, this fear of I can't take an artistic or moral risk um, because right. I'll get punished. Like, there's this sort of inability to take criticism or feedback or even to deliver it yourself, right. oneself, which is like, right, I mean, I come from a was fortunate to have, um, you know, Sri Lankan activist elders who sort of taught me a particular political tradition of, of self-interrogation and self-reflection and self-critique, mm-hmm. which is really valuable to me as not only an activist, but also an artist. And like in those comments, I think the thing that's really fascinating to me about this intersection between kind of art and politics is the way that so much of workshop is predicated on this notion that an individual life can be disaggregated from its community and from history. Right. And it's weird where like, I am not a racist. You know, I can defend myself and my own territory the territory of my individual life. And that's all I have to do. Right. Um, right, Like the preoccupation with, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. That's a line of thinking that it comes up in Bob Hickok's essay. Um, and it extends, I mean, I, you know, I did a lot of reading on the subject for, for white flights, but, uh, you know, Richard Ford is another writer who, um, who often, who, who, who writes about race, but he writes about it in this entirely deflective mode of saying, I'm not a racist. And, you know, Sugi, exactly as you just put it, he says, essentially, like, my responsibility is to my own sort of individual patch of ground. And that's it. It's a kind of, you know, it's a kind of radical individualism that um, I think Americans sort of take for granted and don't interrogate because it's so deeply embedded in our culture. It's so deeply, especially it's embedded in American white culture, I should say. Right. And I want to get to the Bob Hickok. We're going to get to the Bob Hickok essay and, and Tim's terrific response to it in a little bit. But I want to go back to for a second. Um, right. You, in your essay, Parts of Us Not Made at Home, you talk about white students of yours who say to you, I don't know what to write. And I I mean that I remembered hearing that in, you know, classes I was in, like a literature class in high school. Um, and can you relate this, and you, you relate this in the essay to the way that racism makes life boring by reducing it to artificial categories, which reminds me of that sort of the Toni Morrison, um, you know, the very real function of racism is distraction. Could you talk about that idea that um, racism makes life boring? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in, you know, in a way Although we're going to have a very interesting discussion about it, so don't turn the <laughs> podcast off. Well, it's you know, I mean, one of the things I say about in the in the in the introduction, like the second paragraph of of my book, is that um, whiteness is both laughable and lethal. 
And I would say that, you know, about racism in general, it's ridiculous, it's absurd, um, it's uh, risible, but it's also lethal, which is why we have to, you know, pay attention to it and track it closely and interrogate it. But it's also, um, it's the, the reduction of human beings into uh, these totally artificial categories and stereotypes um, is, is, is just, it's just very boring. It's like, um, you know, it's like an artificial flavor of watermelon or grape in a piece of chewing gum, you know, that, that lasts for about 20 seconds and then disappears. You know, it, it's, it's once you actually, um, have a relationship with another human being, um, it's, it's not at all that race disappears, but that the, um, the categories, and the um, archetypes come to come to seem just so you know uh, tissue thin. Um, so that you know, so so one of the things I was trying to say in that in the opening of that of that essay, "Parts of Us Not Made at Home," that's an essay about interracial life. And uh, one of the things I talk about is the fact that my own great grandmother, who came from the Azores. Um, or who actually, more accurately, her parents came from the Azores, which are islands in the Atlantic Ocean that have a, a very Creole population. She was a person of color, my great-grandmother, and she powdered her skin every day to pass as white. Um, so I have that as part of, you know, I'm a, I'm a white person, no doubt, but, you know, as, as you know, that's what I've been taught my whole life. That's how I, I identify. Um, but I have this in my background. I have a passing ancestor. And, the, and um, you know, what I'm talking talking about in that section where I talk about my students who often say, I don't know what to write about. Um, at my school, my school is is um, maybe not majority, but the, the, the most prevalent uh, ethnic ancestry is, is Italian. And so these are these are students whose great grandparents would not have been considered white. Um, and went through a very long process of racial assimilation into American whiteness um, that's sometimes called, uh, Matthew Fred Jacobs, Jacobson calls it, the special alchemy of race that was um, allowed only to Southern Europeans in the 20th century, the way that they assimilated into whiteness. Um, and, you know, my feeling is there's a, there's a lot to be told in that story. One of the things yeah. that I thought about when I was you know, first starting to write when I, I felt the same way about my upbringing, like I can't write about it. But that thought was really a thought of, first of all, I've, I understand that too many white guys have written about, you know, relatively safe, middle, upper class life, you know, and, and, and okay, that's happened. But also what I realized was that the truth of my life was, was not able to be understood until I thought about it in terms of race and, and the racial covenants that I, we, that Sugi and I talked about at the beginning of the podcast, you know, like the shape of my city, the neighborhood I lived in, the reason that I went to this particular school, the reason the public schools around me were 99% black, all had to do with this racial covenanting system that nobody discussed. And so there's this secret language there that until you're willing to deal with race, you really can't understand your own life. I feel like basically every, and you write about this some in the book too, Jess, is every suburban novel that's ever been written fundamentally misses the fact that the suburbs largely exist as a, as a racial sorting project. You know, like that doesn't happen. Just something that I, I, that's right. Something that, you know, when, when, um, 
the question of like politics and fiction comes up, something I often say is that the most, in some ways, the most politi- politically astute white American fiction writer of the of the late twentieth century was John Cheever, because his narratives of the suburbs, which ostensibly don't concern race at all, are in fact um, a, compl- a a very complete and rich and detailed socioeconomic portrait of the ways that the suburbs consolidated a new kind of white supremacy, effectively. Um, so, you know, I mean, he doesn't say it explicitly, but it's but it's it's there. I mean, his books contain a very um, a very rich and profound understanding of American political life, just in their uh, evocation of a certain landscape, a certain spatial uh, understanding of the world. You advocate in your book, Jessa, uh, for literature that's capable of being or entering the interracial either as a hypothesis or a giving. Uh, to me, you know, it reminded me of Timothy's critique of the Calvin Trillin, Calvin Trillin's 2016 poem, Have They Run Out of Provinces Yet? Uh, right. Tim, Tim, I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about the genesis of that essay. Yeah, sure. So um, it's this uh, this poem by Calvin Trillin, who's obviously a very well-known writer. And uh, from Kansas as, uh, City, by the way. And That's right. That's right. Uh, known as a food critic, but also as somebody who writes light verse. Uh, and so he wrote this poem for The New Yorker called Have They Run Out of Provinces Yet?, which is a poem about all the different kinds of Chinese food that there are. And so Trillin is a a food connoisseur and has written a lot about regional Chinese cuisine. And so this poem is this kind of dog roll that says, oh, you know, first there was Cantonese food, then there was Sichuan food, then there was this kind of food and all of these different kinds of regional cuisine that keep coming over to the United States. And the refrain of the poem is, have they run out of provinces yet? Is there some still region of China that's kind of hiding over there? And, you know, it's a funny poem. It's meant to be humorous. But part of what was so interesting about it was that for Trillin, and I think that this was, what was really interesting to me about the poem was that um, Asian American writers, when they started reading the poem, uniformly had the same kind of cringe reaction to it. They were like, oh my goodness, you know, this is... And, you know, we were trying to understand what the nature of that response was. Why did we feel this way about it? And the part of what I came to talk about in my essay about it was that, you know, first of all, Asian Americans are so accustomed to the idea that um, Chinese culture is simply represented by food, right? We're simply represented as a source of different kinds of cuisines. Uh, And so Americans love Chinese food, but not Chinese people. And... What I detected in the poem, in my reading of it, was the the undercurrents of the yellow peril, the idea that this kind of Chinese invasion of the United States. And of course, you know, people who defended the poem were saying, oh, you know, it, it's not really about that. It's just it's just a joke. It's it's satirizing other people who, um, you know, who who don't understand this kind of this kind of food. But. You know, the the elements of the poem that have things like there are lines like um, now each new brand new province appears, it brings tension, increasing our fears. And so, you know, what's the nature of that fear? Uh, You know, what is the nature of that sense that there's just more and more Chinese stuff that keeps coming over here? So I, I think the way to connect that to the conversation that we're having is that. 
you know, for for Trillin in an interesting way, this isn't about Chinese people at all, right? It's about his his own interpretation of the poem when he sort of mildly defended it was that he was uh, you know, satirizing food snobs, that he was talking about all the people who are constantly trying to find the latest thing. And so what that meant was, and my response was, well, you know, what happens when an Asian American reads this poem? What happens when an Asian reader is actually in the room? And that Trillin's understanding of what the poem was doing was really about, I think unconsciously, a, a white food connoisseur talking to and critiquing other white food connoisseurs and then being taken aback when Asian Americans said, hey, you know, where are we in this poem? Like, does this poem is kind of talking about us in this very indirect way, but we're not really, you know, literally at the table or we're, we're on the table, but not at it. <laughs> yeah. I, right. Can I just add one thing about that, please? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I had a conversation with my friend Yadan Israel, who's a writer and, and um, does many other things, uh, literary activities in, in New York City. Uh, I, I did an event with him uh, in Brooklyn this past Wednesday. And one of the things he brought up uh, talking about my book, which I thought was so useful and important, is how how crucial it is for um, white writers to talk about the kind of conversations that go on in all white spaces. Because, of course, those are, by necessity, those are spaces that people of color don't have access to. And it's it's you know, what goes on in those spaces is, is profoundly ugly and, uh, and disturbing. And um, all, all, often, I think, white people avoid talking about it because it's so embarrassing. But one thing I will say is that, you know, I was, you know, I was, I was, you know, I've been privy to these conversations all my life. And part of what Tim is talking about is this attitude of white Americans toward Asian culture in general, which is a consumption-based attitude. Uh, whether you're talking about yoga, whether you're talking about food, whether you're talking about meditation, whether you're talking about feng shui, it's um, what aspects of this culture can we um, consume, uh, monetize, uh, transform? Um, and, you know, uh, s some of that interest is very genuine and very passionate and very real. But oftentimes it's a sense that uh, Asian cultures are a kind of buffet that just stretches on into infinity. You know, there's literally, always literally, right? Literally, yeah. right? And that, you know, and that, and I think part of well, what Tim also too. uses yeah. points out the way he uses the pronoun of the title. You know, have they run out of provinces yet? That that right. you know, I, I thought that was important. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that uh, this idea of the right, the, the invisible we, who is this uninterrogated we that is at the heart of this poem and the they, the whole the poem is only funny and only works because there's a divide between the we and the they, but neither are ever named. And so I think part of what, you know, Jess is pointing to here is the need to name the we and the, the they. But, you know, to, to tie this back to the, the opening of the conversation, I think what's so interesting about that, it seems for, for a lot of white writers. So one response is, well, writing about being white is simply boring, right? Like there's nothing to write about. And I think that's part of the position that whiteness is just an unmarked space, right? So there, you know, so it's just, there, there is nothing there. It's an absence of race, right? And I think that's where something like Trillin's poem comes from, right? He's not thinking about 
at all his racial position in in the poem. He's not interrogating it at all. And the reason it's the poem sort of steps in it is because of exactly that. And then when writers of a color pointed that out, then and I still have friends. I have a very good friend who is also an English professor who still argues with me about this poem and still like, oh, like you don't really understand what he's trying to do. It's really satirical. I'm like, yes, I, I do understand that's satirical, but it's about the position from which it's being written and read. So there's that, there's the unmarked space, but then there's the, and this maybe kind of goes, gets uh, closer to the Bob Hickok essay. On the other side of that, there's the fear of actually engaging race. It's like, okay, if I did write about race, if I did engage it in an explicit way, I'm really afraid to do that, either because I'm afraid of being called a racist, I'm afraid of being told I'm appropriating something else, I'm afraid of being told that I can't write about that, and so on. So I think a lot of white writers, white writers who have gotten to the point where they're at least conscious of the way race uh, appears in their work seem to find themselves caught in that mm. in that region, uh, and I, I think that's that's really interesting. I, I think that's a that's a position that we see some some white writers in right now, including including Bob Hickok. But um, but yeah, Trillin I think is more in the I haven't it hasn't even occurred to me to think about this issue yet. But see, I just want to add, Sugi. I know uh, I want to get you into this conversation too, but the history. The interesting thing about Calvin Trillin is that he's Jewish. He comes out of a Jewish community in Kansas City that was separated from WASP culture. His uh, family owned a, 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 a grocery store down the street from me that in what is now the black part of town, they saw that racial change. His first book was about marches in uh, civil rights marches in the civil rights era. So he was aware, right? And and he could have just said, "I'm sorry, I screwed that up." That's that's what I, I feel like. Like white writers could learn to just say, "Like, uh, okay, I, I botched that. That you got a good point," and move on, you know. And I feel like you're gonna screw up sometimes when you're writing about this issue. And and instead of being defensive, you can just say, "All right, uh, gotcha. You're okay." Well, this is this is an interesting wrinkle to this, right? Because I think that right. So Trillin obviously is somebody who has thought about racism, has thought about kind of the the black white axis in American culture, uh, and at the same time, he's kind of made his name as a connoisseur of Asian culture. But I think that he probably doesn't see that as having a racial element, right? I mean, I, I think that as Jesus right. was saying that, you know, Chinese culture is something to be kind of understood and consumed. I mean, I saw another group of people who would defend defending Trillin saying, oh, but, but he knows what he's talking about. He's knowledgeable about Chinese food. And I'm like, have you read Orientalism recently? It's like, that's, you know, that's what Orientalism is. Right? It's generating knowledge about the other. Um, and so that, that idea that, Good book. Um, you know, yeah, exactly. It's, it's good book. People should read it, you know. But um, but yeah, that that idea that that also doesn't have a racial component is is interesting. But I also think that it has something to do as well with the kind of invisibility of Asians as a racial category in the United States still for for a lot of people. That's funny. I for a long time I went to. Um... I, I wish for a long time that there was a way to assign journalism, uh, journalists uh, orientalism that it just ha would have had to be required <laughs> reading in all newsrooms and at all journalism schools because it would be so I feel like so many of the so much of the time when I'm reading news coverage and, and I worked as a journalist for a long time that when I 
talk about that um, from the point of view of, you know, having read that book and being a person of color, um, that isn't text that they're necessarily familiar with. Those aren't necessarily ideas that they're even familiar with. I also want to go back to the thing that, that Jess said about all white spaces. Witt and I had a super interesting prep conversation for this call. And um, one of my questions for him, I was sort of like, what do white writers talk about when I'm not in the room? I was basically like, wait, what happens in all white spaces? And I was like, do you guys criticize yourselves? Like, is there self-critique in the white community? Do you guys even think of yourselves <laughs> as a community? And I was also thinking about, you know, the other day I was at lunch with a very dear former student of mine who's a person of color, her husband who's also a person of color, and a white writer who's a good friend of ours. And um, another version of this sort of came up and the white writer said, you know, as a white person, well, well, as a white person, and then all of us laughed. Um, and I was just thinking about the ways in which, right, that sort of sentence is is now beginning to be said. Um, and and yet also we we laughed because it's so rare. And because it is a, you know, it's a phrase taken from the ability and the, the training of acknowledging the position that you come from. And, um, you know, which is also, I think, kind of where the, the Hickok essay falls down a little bit. And, in the in um, the Trillin response, Tim, you write uh, Asian Americans are in the room, and that reminds me of the Hickok essay where he seems dismayed to discover that there are so many other people in the room and is trying to he he writes you know reconcile his political position with his emotions about his own career and he goes on to write quote but as a group I don't think straight white guys can fit into the world taking shape not easily based on what we know about that world and not quietly based on what we've done. Those of you who aren't straight white guys can see many of us thrashing around. I actually, I'm not sure that I see that many of them thrashing around. Um, some trying to escape <laughs> the past and some trying to tear off our skin and hide it and many trying not to say anything lest we put our feet in our mouths, which we do often because we don't know how to be in a world that requires us to think about race and gender. For hundreds of years, we could largely suppress or ignore outside treatment of us as a category, a class, a thing, and existed above such considerations. In historical terms, we're new to this kind of introspection. And the last people anyone else will listen to when it comes to matters of race and gender, even when we speak about ourselves, boy, that must be hard. Um, mostly because we've <laughs> lied too much and too long, lied and pretended, drag, lied and dragged our feet. So there is this kind of like interesting um, wrestling with like the notion of, I don't know, like the lack of tradition of self-critique, if, if that's actually a fair statement. I don't know. Tim, can you characterize a debate over this Bob Hickok essay a bit more for our listeners who might not be familiar with it and, and maybe read to us a little bit from your response? Yeah, sure. I can definitely do that. So this essay uh, by Bob Hickok, who's a quite established, well-known poet, he, as his bio notes at the end of the uh, piece, he is just has, is just publishing his 10th collection of poetry. So, uh, you know, pretty, pretty well-known writer. So he wrote this essay called, which has the title, The Promise of American Poetry. It originally appeared in the Michigan Quarterly and just reappeared online, The Utney Reader. And so... Hickok's essay, as the title suggests, it sounds like it's a celebration of the fact that American poetry is really changing. And as he puts it, the face of poetry has changed. And primarily what this means is that uh, more writers of color, more women, more queer writers are kind of coming to the forefront of American poetry. The way he puts it is that the hottest books of the moment are by people of color, or by queer writers, and, and so on. So that part seems all great, fine, good, but the essay really ends up focusing on how Hickok 
feels about these developments as, as he puts it again and again, as a straight white guy? And, uh, you know, how should he respond to this change? So I started writing this in part after I was at the Asian American Literature Festival in Washington. And when I arrived there, I found that everyone was talking about this Bob Hickok essay. In fact, the first session that I was in, somebody raised their hand and asked a question about it. And so there was this conversation actually about how Asian American critics need to be out there responding when discussions like this happen and to have that kind of visibility. So after that conversation, I thought, okay, well, I guess I can step up and be the one to do that in this case. So that's part of why I I set out to write this. So I'll just read from some of the section where I talk about some of the evidence that Hickok uses to talk about this change in American poetry. Let's start with the obvious. Hickok's main thesis, that white male poets have been eclipsed by women and poets of color on the literary scene, is simply false. The Vita Count, which for the past decade has tracked gender disparities in literary journals and reviews, found that in 2017, only two of 15 major literary publications achieved gender parity among their contributors. Over 60% of contributors to the New Yorker were men, as were over 75% of contributors to the New York Review of Books. Although comparable figures for poets of color are not readily available, there is ample data showing that American publishing as a whole remains overwhelmingly white. Even Hickok's claim that among, quote, winners of major literary prizes, the books that come up least often are by straight white men, doesn't hold up to scrutiny. Of the 13 Pulitzer Prizes in poetry awarded since 2008, nine went to white writers, six of whom were men. So why does Hickok, in the face of the available evidence, believe that white poets are disappearing? Well, Hickok is surely correct that a number of poets of color have made major impacts on the literary scene in the past few years, a development Hickok rightly views as a major advance for American letters. Yet he also sees them as harbingers of a literary world in which writers of color dominate American literature completely, to the exclusion, it would seem, of white writers altogether. This is perhaps most evident in a remarkable choice of words toward the end of the essay, when Hickok declares that, quote, American poetry is undergoing an inversion of the hierarchy that has dominated it all along. The term inversion suggests not a newly level playing field, but a reversed hierarchy in which writers of color now rule and white writers are pushed to the margins. As I've already shown, there's no evidence that this is actually happening, but clearly Hickok feels it is. Here's where things start to get uncomfortable. That the entry of a few people of color into spaces from which they have previously been excluded can lead to fears that people of color are taking over is not news. The concepts of reverse racism and reverse sexism have become widespread. In areas like college admissions or employment, such fears are often linked to a sense of scarcity of resources in which whites are being pushed out of their access to college or jobs by presumably undeserving people of color or immigrants. We can glimpse this thinking in Hickok's conception of poetry as a zero-sum game. If poets of color are getting a little more that must mean less for white poets like him. It doesn't seem to occur to him that poets of color might be expanding the audience for poetry or creating new readerships. 
their gain can only be his loss. For Hickok, the rise of poets of color means his own death. I'm dying as a poet, he declares at the outset of the essay, because the face of poetry is finally changing. Oh, how great a distance is there between this fear that white poets are being displaced by poets of color and the hideous chant of Charlottesville, you will not replace us. Hickok would no doubt be appalled and likely wounded by this comparison, but I think it is one we have to make. For Hickok's essay is at its core about the emotions that white men feel as they watch the slow erosion of the structures that once protected their power and privilege and the outsized and unwarranted fear of their own erasure that they experience as a result. Hickok's experience of this erasure is one of guilt, sadness, and loss, because he knows he should celebrate this changing of the guard, and yet he cannot. Feelings are political, too. It is not hard to see how, for many white Americans, this fear of erasure can lead to anger and resentment as well. Emotions that have proved to be tender for the racist, racist sparks of the Trump era. Thank you so much, Tim. And, you know, I think in my initial reaction, you know, my response that I wrote was a kind of very sort of, you know, immediate uh, responding to some of the most obvious points in the essay. In the context of this conversation, I think what's fascinating about it is some of the passages that you just read, um, the way in which he's very openly struggling with, you know, where is my place as a straight white guy? And so he's obviously just coming to terms with the idea of understanding himself in that way and but really feeling this sense of paralysis in the sense of this, like, what do I you know, what do I do now? Where is my where is my place in this? You know, this isn't really directly related to the essay, but I remember uh, quite some years ago when I was writing about um, another poet, Ron Silliman, who's part of the language writers. Um, Silliman has this reflection of being around in the late 60s. And, you know, he's in Oakland and he's watching the Black Panthers like just form. The Black Panthers are like standing out in some park, like doing drills or something. And he said and he, uh, he writes you know, if this is the left, if this is kind of the, you know, the, the future of politics, like, where is my place in that? Where, where do I fit into this as a, you know, and implicitly, he doesn't say this, but implicitly as a white writer. And I think that, you know, white writers who see themselves as liberals, see themselves as on the left, have been struggling with this for decades, that they see people of color kind of taking leadership, whether it's from civil rights, whether it's in uh, literature and so on. And for some writers, for some white writers, that leads to the response, you know, where do I fit in? And so there's this very uncomfortable tension in the piece between ostensibly celebrating the rise of writers of color and saying, oh, gee, well, now as a, as a white writer, I'm just vanishing. Well, there's also the issue of, uh, the eternal issue of writerly vanity, which is the uglier part of that essay. I mean, you know, <laughs> right, like right. other yes. people's success does not have to be a bad thing for you. Just in just whoever you're talking about, that was that's one of the parts of the essay that I found, you know, uh, difficult. You know, my my response is very much aligned with Tim's responses. What I would really draw attention to is um, first that Bob Hickok's facts are not correct, largely, um, when he talks about, uh, you know, who's winning the prizes or who's getting the awards. It's very 
it's it's very what he's the 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 actual facts and statistics that he brings up are very very selective but the the larger point i would say is that he's articulating uh white fantasies about um white people being erased or pushed to the side or marginalized that are are very old they go back to the founding of the United States. Uh, he's voicing. Updike used to say stuff like that about Jewish writers, right? He would, you know, correct. Like, and that's right. why he invented that back character. He's like, well, the Jewish writers are getting all the attention. I, I, that's a wasp. I can't get any. You know, it's just like it's so insane. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I know, I know that the the term white fragility has come in for some critique, but um, I would urge everybody to read, if not. Robin D'Angelo's whole book, at least the the essay, the the academic paper actually that she um, where she introduced that term, because I think in the literary world, uh, white fragility is everywhere, and the Hickok essay is a is a prime example of it. Um, the 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 simple fact is that uh, white writers are are not getting displaced; they're not being pushed out; they're not being marginalized. Um, I think it's very important to remember that in the early 20th century, in the heyday of modernist writing, um, books, popular books about the coming uh, wave of non-white people that were going to wipe out the white race were hugely popular. Um, they come up early. The, a book, uh, a very famous example, comes up early in The Great Gatsby. And that kind of, um, that kind of, that fear of um, of the rise of the black race or the rise of the colored races um, is very much in the background of modernist American literature. And, you know, because a lot of that stuff is forgotten, it really, it feeds into the politics of contemporary American literature as well. So much of that, I think, very, you know, whether Hickok intends this or not, permeates his essay, this sense that, okay, so, you know, great, white, Colors of writers of color are really coming to the the fore, but the way in which Hickok describes that is he talks about uh, kind of inverting the hierarchy of uh, of American writing, and uh, then there's this really amazing line where he says, "Well, you know, when the branch has been held back for that long, it's going to snap back really right. hard." Right. And I'm like, right. "Wow, you know, there's there is this that exactly that fear that Jess is talking about that." People of color are on the rise and they're going to want theirs. They're going to want payback. Right. Right. And I was like, wow, what, what is that about? But it's exactly about this. It's exactly about this long running idea that, you know, uh, you know, since white Americans have dominated things for so long, you know, we have to keep people of color down because if we don't, if they get power, they will come after us. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. As I said at the opening, this is a two-part episode, so subscribing is really going to help if you want to hear both parts of this really amazing conversation and want to hear what Jess Rao and Timothy Yu have to say. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the fiction, nonfiction podcast page is listed under the LitHub radio tab. If you value discussions like this one, take a few seconds, a few seconds, and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. 
We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. Happy reading.